When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure to subscribe. And it'd be great to hear from you with a rating and a review too. This week we're trying to unravel the mystery of one of the most enigmatic objects to emerge from Roman history. It's a three-dimensional, 12-sided object, a dodecahedron, and only 120 of them have been found. Joining us now to talk about this curious object and how you can see it is Collections Curator for Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region, Dr. Francis McIntosh. Hi Charles, thanks for having me to talk about this object. I love it, but it does drive quite a lot of people potty because they expect us as museum and heritage professionals to have all the answers and as I think people will find through our chat today we actually haven't got a clue. (laughs) Yes well I'm hoping that you might have some answers to my questions so let's begin by talking about how people can see the subject for themselves and that will be at Corbridge Roman Town in Northumberland but it is a dodecahedron 12-sided shape. How would you describe it apart from that? (laughs) Yeah so um We call it a dodecahedron because that is just the basic kind of maths name for it. It's a 12-sided object, but it's a Roman object. It's got 12 flat pentagonal faces, so five sides to each face. And each of those faces has a hole in it. And the holes are all different sizes, a varying size. And on each of the corners or the vertices, it's not quite a, because it's not a four-sided corner, there's often small knobs on there. They're all copper alloy, the ones that are known. And they do range a little bit in size, but I always say to people, kind of imagine it, you can hold it in your hand, it's a little bit smaller than um, a tennis ball, and they weigh a little bit more than you might think because they're made of metal. So yeah, the ones you see now are often a bit browny or greeny because of the corrosion, but they would have been a bright copper colour, a bit like our, you know, brand new 2P pieces. Oh, wow. Okay. Of the holes within the pentagonal shapes that make up the sort of lattice that then Mm -hmm. turns into this sphere those holes are they circular yeah they're all circular and they're all varied in size so there's on each dodecahedron it has 12 holes and all 12 holes are a different size and i don't think there's been a study yet to know exactly if all if hole one is the same diameter on every dodecahedron but there isn't it is definitely not because the dodecahedron can be slightly different sizes and shapes because they seem to be one-off productions so it's not like the the Romans are churning them out in you know huge quantities. Like yeah, you say we've got maybe 120, 130 across the whole empire. Mm. And I should correct myself by saying it's a twelve sided shape, so it does have harsh edges. It's not uh, it's not a sphere, but I suppose if no. you squint or if you look at it from a distance, mm-hmm. it almost does look uh, slightly spherical. Yeah, and when you hold it, you kind of it makes you think of it as like a kind of a ball because you you know it's that sort of thing. And yeah. then with the knobs on the outside as well, 
So Yeah, I'm curious to know about what they do, but uh, mm. perhaps we'll work that out as we go through this. So of these 120 objects that have ever been found across the Roman Empire, how many have been found in the United Kingdom or specifically England as we now know it? So about 32, 33, um, you know, that's a fair chunk of them. That's a quarter of them. And that's Br- um, so Britannia, the, the British yes. Isles, effectively. Yeah, Britannia, you know, as the Romans would have called it. Right. Yeah. Do they vary in design, size and shape? So they don't really vary too much in design. You know, they're all 12-sided. They've all got circular holes in them. And I should have said, probably didn't explain properly, but they are hollow inside. So those holes... You can poke your finger through a hole and come out the other side, you know. But they do range in size. So the smallest ones are four centimetres in width slash diameter. I know it's not quite a circle. And the large ones are 11 centimetres in diameter. So they do range in size. And because of that, they also range slightly in weight from 35 to 580 grams. But there's a lot kind of in that that middle zone. Design-wise, there's sometimes the differences can be the decoration on the faces. So some of them where the holes are around the hole they have an incised kind of circle like a concentric circle around the outside of it or they might have notches cut into the edges on on some of the faces and sometimes the knobs are slightly different shapes but they're in a very narrow design Mm. you know framework so they look quite mathematical they're not necessarily patterned or anything like that no so there's a little bit of patterning like with these concentric circles or the Corbridge example, which is kind of in the middle of its range. So the Corbridge example weighs 185 grams and it's a pretty uh, solid one. That has on the edges in between two faces has lines incised in it. Different number of lines. We can't work out if there's a reason for the different number of lines and if it means a number or if it's just a different pattern. But they're fairly undecorated because considering how much we know the Romans enjoyed colour and decoration in other objects. I think the shape seems to be the key with these things. I see from the map that you've sent me in preparation for this episode that there is a cluster of three dodecahedra found along Hadrian's Wall in the northeast of England. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So Corbridge, the example I just mentioned already, is the Roman site, which was a fort before Hadrian's War, and then becomes a town. And we have the complete dodecahedron from from here. And unfortunately, we don't know very much about where it was found. It's not, um, it wasn't kind of described when it was found, so we're not exactly sure where it came from on the site. But then we also have two others. Um, and interestingly, Hadrian's War is 73 miles long. You know, it runs all the way from the east at Wall's End, all the way to the west at Bowness and Solway. But the three dodecahedra from Hadrian's Wall are all from the eastern side. So Corbridge is the furthest west. And then we have Newcastle. So there's a fort under modern Newcastle. And that the dodecahedron there was found during excavations, fairly modern excavations, which was great because we were able to get a bit more information. And there it was found in the East Granary. And the layer it was found in dated it to the late 3rd century or later on. And then South Shields, which is technically further east than the end of the wall because Hadrian's Wall ends at Wall's End, but it's very much part of the frontier system. Um, and it's on, you know, obviously the East Coast. Again, the dodecahedron from South Shields was a late 19th, early 20th century discovery, you know, much more of an antiquarian work rather than the modern scientific excavation. So we don't really have any context. We don't know where from the site it came from. And the South Shields and Newcastle examples are much more similar. So they 
both have the concentric ring incised around the holes on the faces, whereas the Corbridge one is different and the Corbridge one weighs a lot more and is a lot chunkier than the two South Shields and Newcastle ones. So I don't think we're really have enough information probably to say this, but it's more likely that the South Shields and Newcastle one could have been made by the same workshop, but the South, the Corbridge one looks very different. Right. If you were comparing them in your hand, how would they compare these these three objects? So the South Shields and the Newcastle one are about six and a half centimetres across, made of kind of slightly thinner copper alloy. So they, they're small and they feel lighter when you hold them. The Corbridge one is a little bit bigger, not hugely bigger, but the metal is much thicker, so it weighs quite a lot more than the other two. So they do look different. And I think the alloy composition is also different. So the makeup of the metal with the copper with its other additions, you know, they've got different, what we would call patina. So they, they look a slightly different colour. And they are, as I say, they've got that different design in that the Corbridge one has incised lines on the edges in between the faces, whereas the South Shields and Newcastle one have an incised circle around the holes on the flat of the faces. Okay. It's really tricky. These things are so visual. Um, so sort if, of tennis ball size? A bit smaller than a tennis ball, probably, yeah. Yeah, because it needs to be a, a fairly decent size, I suppose, for the person who's working on it to actually work the shapes into this 12-sided mass, I suppose. I mean, you don't no, want to go too small, do you? The Roman crafts people were extremely skilled and they make tiny things out of metal. So I don't think the size has anything to do with their kind of capability or the ways they worked because some of the brooches that we have, the copper alloy brooches that are like a safety bin holding up the clothes, some of those have got really ornate small detail, the same with fingerings and things like that. So no, I think the size is probably something to do with its function as opposed to kind of reason to do with manufacturing. So I I should have given the um, Roman craftspeople a bit more credit, I suppose. Yeah, well, you can come to Corbridge and look at all of our beautiful objects that they made and wonder at how they did it with the tools they had. Exactly. And we'll touch on uh, the exhibition a bit later. But um, So these dodecahedra, they were presumably made by skilled people. Do we know any more than that? No, and this is going to be a bit of a theme of the conversation today. You ask me a question and I say, oh, I wish we knew that. Um, they would have been very skilled because these are not easy things to make. They're probably bespoke commissions and one-off commissions. And we're not 100% sure how they were made. For a long time, the kind of most accepted way is with a lost wax casting. So that's where you shape something out of wax, put a clay mould around that, fire that, the wax melts and leaves the space inside there. And then you pour the metal in, let it cool, and then you have to crack the mould probably to get it out but this would be really tricky with this because it's a hollow sphere and how do you get make sure that all the metal goes into the tiny holes it's a really complicated design and there's a PhD student who's just started at Newcastle University called Lorena Hitchens and her PhD is all about dodecahedra and how they were made what they might have been used for you know why do we only find them in certain areas etc etc and for her MA thesis she looked at the three examples that we've talked about Newcastle, South Shields and Corbridge to kind of test a lot of the methods that she wants to use in her PhD and she's suggesting there could have been another way perhaps it was made as a kind of a flat net and then folded up while still warm was it cast in one with the knobs added after 
and she's using 3D scanning and really detailed studies to try and look at that. And as I say, she's done this on the three on Hadrian's Wall as a test for her MA. And now she's going to start her PhD and hope to look at as many examples as she can. So I'm really hopeful the next few years we might get a few more answers. Are there any clues on the outside of the object as to where the joins are? So this is why we need more study, um, why Lorena's work's important, but it does look on the Corbridge example, like the knobs were added afterwards, so not part of the casting or whatever way it was made, but it's tricky to see if there's joins, so if it was made as a net and put together, because obviously the manufacturers, the craftspeople would have smoothed that evidence away because they would want it to look as a whole but you can do detailed microscopic analysis etc which is what you know Lorena will do and she just needs to look at more of them to find those little tiny bits of evidence because it might not be on every piece so she needs to look at a lot of them to find and there's probably not a set way of making them as you described perhaps there are different no methods. I think that's probably true because you might go to somebody and say I want you to make me a 12-sided thing. I've seen one. It looks like this. You know, and the craftsperson will be like, right, well, this is how I would make it. But if they've never made one before, they're just going to be using their knowledge of the materials they work with and how they think it would work. But unless they saw the actual product they were copying, they wouldn't know if they were making it in the same method or not. And it, in a way, it wouldn't matter. As long as they come out with a product that their customer wants, then that's fine, isn't it? It's almost like the Rubik's Cube of the Roman world and maybe a status symbol or something. I don't know. Well, yeah. You know, why are there only 120, 130? It's not that many when you think about actually the vastness of the material culture we find across the empire. Yeah, I'd say that's that's rare. I mean, maybe oh, there are yes. loads of others lying under the ground in various places across the former empire, but what's turned up already anyone dealing in antiques would probably treat these as highly prized wouldn't they oh yeah they're definitely a rare item we can have a few hundred brooches from one site and then we've only got 130 of this type of object across the whole empire it shows you that kind of level of rarity that they represent and for these other objects, we've described about 30 or so in Britannia found and, and three up in the northeast of England. So of the rest, uh, the total, the, the 120, where have all these been found? Are there certain clusters across Europe? or? So basically they come from what we would call the northwestern part of the Roman Empire. So they're in the countries that we today call Belgium, Croatia, France, Germany... Hungary, Luxembourg, and then some of the Netherlands and Switzerland. So there's none in Spain, Italy, North Africa, Turkey, the kind of heart of the empire and the eastern part of the empire. So that's something else we don't understand. Why are they only in this northwestern part? Are they more a kind of item that's either inspired or linked to the behaviours and the activities in that part of the empire, which is often also called the Gallic Empire. You know, it's got a different kind of group of cultures there before the Romans arrive. So nothing in modern-day Italy? Nothing in modern-day Italy, no, at all. That's really surprising. Yeah, and you asked about kind of clusters, but not really. And equally, they're not only found on specific sites. So quite a lot of them don't have greater context. 
tricks, which doesn't help us in understanding, you know, their purpose and use. But there's five found on forts, two in bathhouses, one in a theatre, one's come from a tomb, one's from a well that had been filled with objects as a votive deposit. There's one from a Gallo-Roman temple in Germany. A few have been found through dredging in rivers. They seem to be found in all aspects of Roman life across that part of the empire. They're not, you know, only within religious contexts or only within military contexts, okay. which just makes it even more interesting, I think, doesn't it? Because what are they for if all ways of life potentially are using them? Yes, and from what you're saying, there's no pattern to the finds. It's not It's not really giving off any further clues. No, not at all. So there's two that have been found in what we would call scientific excavations or modern excavations that give us really good detailed kind of information about the context they were found and the objects they were found with, as opposed to just it's from the fort or it's from a temple. And one of those is in Germany, and that was found in a burial, a fourth century burial, a very richly furnished tomb of a female. And there she had lots of other grave goods along with that, but nothing that particularly pointed to what it could have been used for. But it was obviously significant for her because it was put in the grave with her for her afterlife. And then the other one that's got good detail is one that was found in France, the Roman city of Noviodunum, which is now Jubilin, in 1995. And that was in a building that had a room with a cellar. The ceramics in that building and the coins suggest that that building was used at the end of the 3rd into the 3rd century. So there you've got already two dates 100 years apart for this object. The Newcastle one, which I just mentioned before, that's found in the East Granary, and that's late 3rd century or later. It was a demolition area, so didn't have brilliant kind of occupation context to put it in. So the fine spots really don't help. No. Plot thickens. Um, what about metallurgical analysis? Has any of that taken place in labs yet to compare any of these many dozens of objects? No. So I think some of the individual finds might have been analysed as part of, say, the report from the excavations. But that's obviously only something that's come into kind of use in the last 10 or so years. And most of these objects have been found in the 19th or early 20th century. So unless someone was researching them and going back, it hasn't been done. And that's, again, something that Lorena's hoping to do. I think that would reveal some, hopefully, some information about where that metal came from and also where the object has travelled from, potentially. Um, Possibly, although kind of understanding copper alloys is really tricky. There's a project actually at Reading University called Remade, which is all about the recycling of copper alloys from Iron Age right through to the early medieval period to see whether you can look at tracking where alloys came from and where they were used and how they've been recycled. But what analysis of a large number of the dodecahedrons could do, dodecahedra, is it could tell us if they used a specific recipe for this object type because we know that the Roman craftspeople really understood their materials. So they would add other things to the copper to either make it more shiny or you know, stronger, shinier, a slightly different colour. 
more molten at a different temperature for easier use in the mold, you know. So they did know that. So the metallurgical analysis would be really useful both to compare dodecahedra, but also to compare that, say, one dodecahedra from Newcastle with other objects found in the fort in the same place to see if they're using just a local recipe for all copper alloy things or if they've specifically chosen a recipe for the dodecahedra. We're not that much further on from where we started, but um, we have some sense of the objects. But what is their purpose? What was their purpose? Well, who knows? We don't know. There's well over 50 theories that have been put down in writing from you know academics to interested amateurs and all the between. And some of them are, you know, completely out there. Some of them are based on really detailed studies and other things. And for example, there's one that's quite popular for a while and that it was the dodecahedra we use for knitting gloves. So if you just pop that into YouTube, you know, dodecahedra knitting gloves, you'll find two or three videos where people have 3D printed, I think, a dodecahedra and had a go at knitting gloves. Now, I'm not a knitter, but I've spoken to people who knit and they say it's a really weird way to knit gloves. It's not kind of efficient or economical but the reasoning behind those people was that all the holes are different size so, it's so you could choose the right holes for your finger size okay um so it's possible but not plausible yeah i think you know it's possible and they these videos show people doing it but if you speak to knitters they say there's no way they would never do that and again as we've talked about roman crafts people knew the best way to do things so it doesn't seem likely it's a very expensive tool to create for knitting which you don't need weapons that's got to be a one of the first theories that comes up yeah so that was an early theory because it looks a little bit like you know a medieval mace head Mm. that you'd stick on a staff and then throw around or you could pop it on a chain couldn't you and whirl it around in a a melee but it's a little bit i mean it hurt if someone whacked you on the head with it for sure but they kind of sway of opinion is that that's, it probably wasn't a type of weapon. It's a bit smaller. There would have been more of them if it was a weapon and a, and a useful weapon. Because if you wanted to launch a barrage of them, you'd need a lot of them and presumably more of them would then be found. Yeah, you'd just throw stones, wouldn't you? You know. <laughs> yes, yes. Quite an ornate thing to use as uh, a weapon in, in battle. Yeah. There is another kind of military or well, I suppose it's cross between military and votive is that it was a signum militare, which was kind of drawn up the staff for the army's flag. So it was something to do with the, you know, and you know, the army and the legions, their flag and their standard was very important to them. So maybe it was something to do with that. But again, no evidence. A piece of decoration at the end of a flagpole on a standard or something. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm curious. I don't know. What about a toy? Is it some sort of game or? That's on the list of people, and some people have suggested it could have been used in some way, like the French cup and ball game, the the Bilbo K, I think it's called, which is not quite our what you see and think of in Britain of almost like an egg cup with a, a staff that you hold and the the um, ball and the string, but not too dissimilar. So someone suggested that, but again, it just seems a little bit ornate for that. Making it out of metal be strange, that sort of thing. You know, we know a lot of children's toys are made out of wood and ceramic, not so much metal. So that's not really one that's taken hold. There was an idea that they might have been candle holders, because one in Feldberg, which is on the German frontier, the Lemurs, had yellow wax traces inside it. But the Romans had candle holders, both 
purpose-made ones and then they would make one from a pottery flagon when it broke and, and cut it down. So, And they would be much more sensible because they had flat bases, whereas the dodecahedron, although it's got the knobs which kind of make it steady, not really that steady. So yeah, candle holder's not one that's really taken hold. Because do they have a flat base? But do they sit properly on a flat surface? Well, they do, kind of, because they're kind of sat on knobs. It's almost like four little legs. Feet, yeah. But they're not that steady, I would say, if you put a candle in it. No. Okay. Again, doesn't ring true to me and, you know, quite a lot of people. So, What's your favourite theory? Well, I think, so there's two or three kind of theories around it kind of being used for surveying or kind of plotting things out. So there was a German scholar in the 1960s who studied them and he went into great detail. So he said that each hole in the face of a dodecahedron is proportionally related to the hole on the opposite side. So he said you had to line up certain holes and look through it to a rod that you'd place somewhere and that would be able to, then you would be able to put a formula and work out the distance between the dodecahedron and the rod and it was to do with surveying. I'm not sure that, that we've worked that out and whether that's correct or not because he only looked at a couple and you'd obviously need to look at a lot of them mm. because the formula would have to work everywhere because all surveyors would need to know the formula, you know. There's a Dutch scholar who's created a whole website, which you can look at, who said it was used for fixing the spring and autumn equinoxes. And so that's kind of an, ex- he was using it, or she, sorry, apologies, was using it as an astronomical measuring device or surveying. So to kind of plan the harvest. And, you know, so again, it's about like looking through it. So it's all about saying that the shape and the size is key and that the holes are key. I don't know if I agree with either of those two specific examples, but I do think some form of measure or gauge or because it's obviously important that the holes are all different sizes however it's really bad because a lot of archaeologists you know it's it's the joke that archaeologists when they don't know what something is they say it's ritual or you know it's votive but I do wonder if it is something to do with religion and ceremony because the northwestern provinces of the Roman Empire although they were not all one big common culture they did have quite a few things in common and there was similarities in some of the religious practices before the Romans arrived and even once the Romans were here it was, it was different to the kind of central and eastern part of the empire so yes. perhaps the reason they're only present in that part of the empire is because it's something to do with the religious practice that's going on and someone suggested an idea to me that they were used to project light so they're not a candle holder but if you put a candle underneath them and it's in a dark space it projects light uh, and light and dark is very important in religion both roman and kind of celtic it projects a shape onto a wall yeah or it just projects circles of light because it's coming out through the circles so i'm copying out really because i'm saying we don't know but for me it can't be something trivial because it's a big investment of someone's time to make it which means it would have cost quite a lot so someone's spent a fair bit of money on it so it must have been something pretty important and a really important function which you could say surveying or measuring would be very important or often we do see a lot of even today and throughout the ages there's a lot of time and money and effort spent in creating items to do with religious and ceremonies and beliefs aren't there at the moment I'm sticking slightly vague but definitely not something frivolous so not something frivolous, so not not a fashionable object that rich people just had in their homes because it was the vogue thing to have on the table. If they'd all come from a really tight 50-year period, maybe. 
but they're spread across the centuries. There's finds from the 1st to the 4th century. Something's not fashionable or in vogue for that long, I just don't think, across such a large area and in such small numbers. It just doesn't ring true to me. No, but toga fashion couldn't have changed an awful lot, could it? Roman dress couldn't have changed an awful lot oh, in Roman 400 years? Oh, Roman dress did change a lot. It did? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, no one's wearing a toga up on Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> okay, well that's a fair point then. Well, we're just not getting any closer, are we, Francis? No, because there's just no clues. You know, the archaeology doesn't help us. What about written Roman texts? Well, I was going to say, normally we'd try and turn to the classical sources, but we have no idea what the Romans call these objects. You know, I'm fairly certain they didn't call it a dodecahedron. <laughs> and we call it a dodecahedron because we have no idea, A, what it did, or B, what the Romans called it. So we just have called it the most logical thing. It's not written down anywhere. There's no description of anything that we can even, with a good eye, make it into them talking about a dodecahedron. And equally, there's no pictures of any, not even in any graffiti, on any wall paintings, in any sort of sketches or anything like that. So for me, I think the lack of evidence in the literary sources and the pictorial sources does lend a little bit of weight to the fact it might have been something religious or because perhaps it was something that was slightly secret or you didn't write about it. You know, we've done a podcast about Mithraism, haven't we, and Mm -hmm. how that was a secret cult and so we don't know very much about it because it couldn't be written down because it was secret. So I just wonder, you know, is the fact that it's never written about because it's to do with something, you know, religious that's meant to be kept either private or secret to just the members of that belief system? It's a real head-scratcher. It is, and I think that's brilliant because I think... There's so much we don't know about the past and we often fill our podcasts here and our articles on the website and our exhibitions and our talks with things we do know because obviously that's what people want to do. They want to learn things, don't they? And we want, we as English Heritage, we want to tell them that. But I think there is so much we don't know and this dodecahedron is such a great window into the fact that we don't know everything and yes. um, that there's still so much to learn. The mystery of history, as I like to say. Oh, very nice, yeah. I guess you could call it a don't know a hedron, couldn't you? Yes, yeah. No um, idea, hedron, yeah. So if another one of these dodecahedra turns up in England or anywhere else in the former Roman Empire, will this be huge news in the world of archaeology? Yes, and actually this is really good timing because one did just turn up. Last summer, Norton Disney Archaeological Society, who are based in the Midlands, were running a, an excavation, a, a community excavation, and they discovered a complete, pretty much, dodecahedron. It was found on their site, so within a modern excavation, you know, well-recorded, found in a what they think is a maybe a quarry pit with 4th century Roman pottery. So they're going to have to come back this summer and do some more work to kind of work out the bit more detail in the archaeological context. But it's great because it's a brand new find. So Lorena, the PhD student, you know, who I mentioned, she's been able to help them. They have done metallurgical analysis there and it's 75% copper, 7% tin and 18% lead. And it's a bit bigger than the Corbridge one. It's about eight centimetres high slash wide and weighs 254 grams, whereas the Corbridge one's about 180. So this is really exciting because it's one more with proper archaeological context and with the potential to go back and find out more in terms of its archaeological context, but also in terms of looking at the object itself. It's a brand new one to add to the database. And in terms of which period it came from in the Roman occupation of 
Britannia? Is it a late addition? Yeah, so it was found alongside 4th century pottery. So that later period. Okay, so that's the 300s. Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, they might be able to pin that down a bit more once they analyse the pottery in more detail or maybe when they go back this summer to see what else is there. And for context for people who aren't too familiar with the Roman occupation, the official sort of start date is AD 43 and then they sort of depart roughly when? So officially... Britannia leaves the Roman Empire in 410 and that's probably some of the high level officials but a lot of people will have just carried on and nothing will have changed for a good few generations. You mentioned the Corbridge one obviously, do you think Corbridge Roman town or other forts along Hadrian's Wall might be hiding another dodecahedron somewhere? Well I don't see why not because Hadrian's Wall's one big long town in a way isn't it with forts along it it's densely occupied for 300 years so if this is something that was used you know by a large range of people then why is there not any you'd think we might find some further west but who knows yeah you'd hope so because as you say there are three that have been found specifically in northumberland there in the northeast of england yeah Um, so northumberland and you know tyne and weir so that east end of the wall but the center and the west haven't had any yet yes and would that be the route where people would sort of arrive up to the wall if they're making the journey north and then head out west good question so if you're coming from york over land you're going up deer street which goes past Oldborough Roman Town and hits Corbridge. We're just two miles south of the wall. And then you can choose to either go east-west along the wall or further north to Scotland. But if you're coming, say, from Roxeter, you'll be coming up the west coast and go to the west side of Britain and go up the roads that side. So it's not that they could only come up the east. Um, they could equally, if you're coming from London, you might go down the Thames and up the coast in a boat. And then you would land at South Shields probably. So multiple routes. So just for people who haven't got maps in front of them, uh, Corbridge is near the town of Hexham, which is That's kind right. of... If you divided that top half of England into two, Hexham would be kind of in the middle part of the right-hand side, the second half. Yeah, Hexham's about 25 miles west of Newcastle. And then you've got Carlisle to the western side, and that's kind of like in the middle of the left half. Yeah, and the wall runs through Carlisle and onto the west coast at Bowness. And that makes sense, really, because you've got the North Pennines current area of outstanding natural beauty, and that would have been, I suppose, very hilly. Yeah, it was much trickier, as it is still today, to go east-west, you know, across the Pennines. So the two main roads ran either side parallel to those to the coast and to the Pennines. So you've got two routes going up the left and the right-hand side, Mm -hmm. basically. Okay, hopefully there was a trader one day who took a commission all the way up from Roxeter to somewhere on the western side of Hadrian's Wall, maybe, I don't know. And one day we'll discover it. Fingers crossed. So we can see a dodecahedron close up, can't we, as as a visitor to Corbridge Roman Town. How does one see this? Yeah, that's right. So we've got our Corbridge dodecahedron out of store and put him on display but he's not on his own. We've been very kindly lent the South Shields and the Newcastle examples by the respective museums, which is wonderful. So all three are together in a case. And if you just have a quick look on the Corbridge website, we're open weekends until the February half term, and then our opening hours start to increase until we get to seven days a week at 
Easter holidays. It's not just the three objects we've got. We've also got some kind of activities for people to have a think about how they were used, maybe. We very, very much say, here's these amazing objects. They're really enigmatic. We don't know. Here's some of the theories. Try some of them out. And then we have a voting box where people can choose from the three theories that we've highlighted or put their own suggestions in. And then we've been kind of collecting their suggestions at the end of the week. There's been some great ones. I just think it's just a pretty mathematical object, potentially. And maybe tied up with some sort of, as you say, maybe secret belief system for the elites only. Yeah, so what we've done is, because we've had the Corbridge Dodecahedron 3D scanned, we've had some 3D printed in a kind of plastic material, which people can use to trial out the three um, ideas. But then we also worked with our friends at Sheffield Hallam University who've helped us previously, and they have a foundry. So somebody made me, they forged me a copper alloy example so people can feel the weight of it. Oh, wow. Because... We talked at the beginning about some of the ideas and could it be a toy or something like that. And when you hold a plastic printed one, it immediately makes you think toy because it's light, it's easy to do things with. But it's very different when you feel the weight of the metal one. So we wanted people to be able to feel that because I think that's an important part of its you know, function. You've got to understand its materiality and how it actually felt to the Romans. So that's um, an added dimension, pun very much intended. <laughs> yeah. um, to the exhibition. It's a visual display of the archaeological objects within a case, but it's also you can get hands-on with reproduced replicas in different materials. Exactly. And we, we just wanted to have a little bit of fun. And as I said, explain to people we don't know all the answers, talk them through how, you know, maybe archaeologists might consider things and then ask them to input. And how long can people come up and visit and, you know, see these objects on display? So it's on until early July. If there are any schools or teachers listening, maths teachers and history teachers perhaps looking for a good excuse to get the kids on a bus. Exactly. This is a great cross-curriculum, isn't it? You know, with a bit of STEM in there, thinking about the maths. So if you want to come and visit, school visits are free, as they are to all EH sites. It has to be booked 14 days in advance, but you can just look online, get it booked in. It's really easy. And our learning team have actually created a really large Hadrian's Wall resource pack. We did this for our 1900th anniversary. That covers key stage one to four. So you can pick and choose the bits that you want to do, which will complement the dodecahedron exhibition. But then we've also created a sheet so people can make their own dodecahedron. So our graphic designer made us a net. So it's a great maths activity. You cut out the net, fold it and glue the tabs, and then you've got your own dodecahedron. And then it, you know, helps you kind of work through, you know, what it might have been used for. And you can either pick up a copy when you come or it's in the members section in the things to make and do. So do have a look. You can download that. Final question then, Francis. I don't know whether you're mathematically minded because obviously you're very history minded. Did you have a go with this sort of template and try to make one? Oh, yes. I love a bit of craft and, you know, experimental archaeology. So I made mine, cut out the holes, and then I've stuck balls of blue tack on my corners because I wanted mine to specifically look like the Corbridge one with its knobs on. And it does look quite good, but it sticks to my desk. 
so I'm not sure if it helps me understand how it was used. No, but it's it's perhaps something that you could just have sitting there to inspire you when you, you know, writing your various papers. Well, yeah. It's always a talking point for visitors to my office. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, as we approach Valentine's Day, we're looking at some of the love stories associated with English heritage sites. Osborne is still largely furnished as they intended it, so perhaps it's the best place to understand Victoria and Albert's relationship with each other and their family life and their, you know, their love for each other. Thanks for listening. See you next time.